Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. We are coming to you from WKLC Studios in Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin, and we're glad that you could join us today as we continue a discussion uh, that we began many weeks ago now. We're on episode number 14. In the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about the important work of the person of Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. And we could, we could call what we've talked about thus far, salvation one. And I think when we look at Christendom in the broad sense, uh, you know, Christianity today, most Christians would agree with what we've talked about thus far in terms of who Jesus is and what he's done to accomplish our salvation, that he is the savior of sinners who died to pay for our sins. However, today we turn our attention to the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And as we do this, we're going to start entering an area where we find many differences amongst Christians in regard to how the Holy Spirit works, why he must work this way, uh, what he works through, and so on and so forth. So this is going to be a little bit more nuanced, probably, of a conversation, and uh, we're going to have to go a little deeper on certain areas. So today, again, we're, we're going to get started on that topic of uh, what does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit and his work. Uh, now, first of all, just to give you a, a frame of reference, in Acts chapter 2, we read that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, the disciples of Jesus, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, of course, all of this was in fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had made to his disciples even before he was crucified and died. He said, it's to your advantage that I go away, that, that uh, the counselor may come to you, the Holy Spirit, and it would be the Holy Spirit who would guide them into all truth and so on. So, of course, the ascended Christ did fulfill that promise and the Holy Spirit was sent out upon the disciples and the New Testament church. We see that especially on the day of Pentecost and following. You know, some of that begs the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, you know, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. You know, we say God is one, and yet he is three distinct persons in that oneness, uh, the Holy Spirit being the third person of the Holy Trinity. And uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, there was a man named Ananias, and Ananias and Sapphira actually had uh, lied to Peter. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. And the point there is simply just to demonstrate that the scriptures certainly speak of the Holy Spirit as God as distinct from the Son, as distinct from the Father. We see that at Jesus' own baptism, where the God the Father speaks from heaven, God the Son stands in the Jordan River, and God the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity, 
true God with the Father and the Son. The Bible also refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, and the Comforter. All of that being said, in the Nicene Creed, we confess that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. And that becomes important for us to really wrap our minds around. Uh, It is the Holy Spirit who grants life. Jesus has won our salvation, but really it's the Holy Spirit's job to take those treasures of salvation that Jesus has won for us, forgiveness, life, salvation, and bring it to us and make it ours. So, what must the Holy Spirit do so that we can possess the salvation that Christ has earned for us? And here's where the scriptures say, no one can say Jesus is Lord, that is, confess faith in Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. So, unless the Spirit grants us faith, works faith in our hearts, we cannot believe. Now, that being said, this all entails many, many aspects of some of the things we've talked about already in regard to sin, the fall of man. Um, We have to ask ourselves, what is the natural condition of a human being as they are born into this world before coming to faith? And we need to understand that so that we understand what must happen for a person to come to faith and understand what the the Bible says in regard to those kind of uh, issues as well. So let's just start real briefly with a discussion about what are the effects of original sin. And obviously we're talking about not just the effects of the sinful things we do, but that effect of Adam's sin and the subsequent generations who were born after Adam, as children of Adam, you know, we are born into this world guilty and sinful by nature because we are children of Adam. So that is not necessarily a universally shared opinion. There are some Christians who believe that a person is born into this world completely neutral, maybe even with a spark of good in them, and that you only become sinful later on. In fact, some people would say that there is a, an age of discretion where that takes place. So nothing you do when you're young counts against you. Well, that's convenient, you know. Uh, but at a certain point, all of those things start to take effect and count against you, you know. When you ask them, well, what age is that? You know, nobody agrees. Well, it's later, 8, 9, 10, 13, I don't know. So let's get back to this idea of what are the effects of sin on us as we're born into this world, and then we're going to move on to the important work of the Holy Spirit as a result. In Psalm 51, uh, David had confessed, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, And in sin, my mother conceived me, or as another translation would say, I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time of conception. So he doesn't say, oh, I'm glad I I wasn't a sinner originally, but I became one later on. No, uh, he was brought forth in iniquity, sinful from birth, sinful from conception. Now, again, you could say, well, you guys are just cherry picking these verses to try to, to prove a point. And, you know, obviously the Bible doesn't teach this. You're just taking a verse out of context. So I'm going to give you a whole bunch of verses today just to show you how consistent the scriptures speak uh, so that you know we're not just cherry-picking and picking a verse out of context, that this is indeed the consistent, truthful teaching of the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 5, it says, Adam lived 130 years and he begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Seth. 
it's interesting that the Bible uses that language. Remember, in the beginning, uh, man and woman were made in the image of God, in true righteousness, true holiness. And with the fall into sin, that changed. That, that image of God is lost. It's only being restored in believers. The subsequent generations are born in the image of their father, Adam, as we see there in Genesis 5. In Genesis chapter 8, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil. So as we're looking at some of these things, we might want to ask ourselves, is, are, are, we, are we born a blank slate? Are we spiritually neutral? Is there a spark of good in everyone? as many people suggest. And here we see imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil is a, a pretty strong term. It's not a neutral term. It's, it's pretty, um, you know, kind, kind of one that makes us uncomfortable, I think. It's, it's not a flattering term to describe man's heart. In John chapter 3, Jesus would tell Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So sinful flesh begets sinful flesh. We are uh, children of the flesh in the sense that we are born to this world as sinners, born of sinners. And, uh, you know, that is our state as we come into this world. In Galatians chapter 5, St. Paul speaks of that sinful flesh. He says, The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now here, St. Paul is speaking to believers, and he's talking about this sort of inner tug of war that goes on between the spirit of God in us, uh, you know, this idea that we're a new creation, and the sinful nature, which still wants to drag us in the other direction. And the point here is simply this. The sinful flesh is contrary to the things of God, contrary to the spirit of God. It's not neutral. God says, go right. And we say, nope, I'd rather go left. And you know that by experience, that sort of sinful, rebellious side of yourself. When somebody pushes you and says, you really need to clean your room or whatever it might have been, your first inclination, inclination is to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the, the very opposite. I don't want to do that. You can't make me do that. So, Again, the point here is that the sinful flesh is not neutral to the things of God. It's contrary to the Spirit of God. And in 1 John chapter 3, John would say, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So as sinful human beings, as we come into this world, we are children of the devil. And that's, again, that's a, a frightening, a frightening thought. It's not like... Um, certainly not even close to what people, how they would describe us as everybody's born good. I, I once heard somebody make the statement, everybody is born to love and they have to learn how to hate. Uh, it's actually just the opposite. Did you have to teach your children to be naughty when they were born? No. You had to teach them to do the right thing and that didn't come very naturally to them. So, we know from experience these things are true, but again, this reality is not very flattering to us. He who sins is of the devil. Uh, from the earliest centuries of the church, the baptismal rites contained an exorcism because they understood this point. 
And there's somewhat of a remnant in our modern baptismal rites. You know, do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? Uh, certainly that's, that's kind of a carryover of that exorcism. In Romans chapter 5, St. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So we see this common disease of sin that infects us all. But it's worse than that. It's a death sentence. Uh, Death came into the world because of sin. It was not there until sin came into the world, and death is the consequence of sin. So our problem is not just uh, one of of, of a penalty against us. I, I have this bad mark on my, you know, report card or something. I've got a sin. It's a stain or something. No, it's, it's much more dire than that. Uh, we are living in a death sentence. All men will die, and the reason being is because it, there's sin. So those who would deny that children can be sinful, I would ask the simple question, do children die? Yeah. Do babies die? Yeah, they do. They do, unfortunately. It's a sad thing. But that is proof positive that they too are sinners. If they're not sinners, they don't die. But they do die. So it just proves true what the scriptures themselves teach. As St. Paul says in Corinthians, as in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. So Christ is the second Adam. But the point there is simply that Death came through Adam, and as a result, as children of Adam, we will die because we are sinners. Now, as we, as we come to grips with some of these things, uh, I think it's important to, to understand that this is why the, the work of the Holy Spirit becomes so important to us, and understanding it becomes really essential to understanding the Christian faith. Uh, is, is he simply somebody who gives you the tools so that you can save yourself? Or is this a rescue mission of cosmic significance where we have not just, you know, sort of taken a bad path, we're uh, in the depths of depravity. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And so when we come to other passages, we, we see that reflected and it's consistent with everything we've read thus far. For instance, Ephesians chapter 2 You know, Paul talks about it's by grace you've been saved. But at the very beginning of that chapter, he says, And you, to his believing readers, he, that is God, made alive. God made you alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I don't know. I I, I guess I, I haven't worked around a hospital. But maybe Lauren has more expertise in this regard. Have you ever seen a dead person give themselves life? No, I can't say that I have. Yeah, in fact, it's not really possible, is it? A dead person cannot give themselves life. If we were born dead in our sins and trespasses, as St. Paul says there, and notice he says that it was God who made you alive. He didn't say, with God's help, you made yourself alive, or, you know, you took the first step to make yourself alive. No, a dead person can't do any of those things. So this is significant. But again, if you think I'm just pulling these things out of context, we're going to keep on going. Ephesians chapter 4, St. Paul says, I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Gentiles being a reference to unbelievers at this point. 
in the futility of their mind. Okay, so what is the, the capability of our natural mind? He says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Uh, again, very, very stark language here. Uh, you are futile in mind, have understanding that it's darkened as unbelievers, you're alienated from the life of God, you're ignorant of the things of God, and you are blind in heart. Now, none of that sounds like neutral language. Uh, I didn't see, he, you know, St. Paul forgot to add that little emphasis at the end, but there's a spark of good in you. No, he, he doesn't say that. It's a rather bleak statement here. But again, if you think we're just pulling this out of context, we'll keep going. Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So, again, there's none righteous, none who understand, none who seek after God. Of course, we're talking about uh, the unbelieving world, right? I mean, nobody is doing this. So, if, if God sits back and he's just waiting for people to come seek after him, it's not going to happen. That's why, like a good shepherd, he seeks out the lost sheep. And that's exactly what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, right? He came to rescue us, the lost sheep. But again, you know, you might say, well, that's just St. Paul. You know, St. Paul, he liked to talk in tough terms like that. Uh, maybe you're just reading into things. Maybe it's symbolic or whatever. People have an excuse for everything. But let's take a look at uh, Isaiah. We'll go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet says, We are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. So again, I, I can't, I mean, it's kind of getting old at this point, but uh, it's pretty bleak picture that the uh, prophet Isaiah paints for us as well. I mean, hopefully you're starting to see the point here, and we can keep on going. I mean, I could do this all day. We could get more and more verses, but I'll just leave you with a couple more here. Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. Evil, again, there's that term. We don't like it. Children of the devil, evil, dead, ignorant, blind, hostile to the things of God, so on and so forth. How does all of that tie in with the work of the Holy Spirit? So, for a moment here, we're going to talk about something that we would call conversion. How does a person go from being dead in their sins and trespasses, in the darkness of sin, in the ignorance of their mind, in the blindness that they have toward the things of God, in the hostility that they have toward God? How does a person go from that to becoming a believer? Obviously, a dead person cannot give themselves life. So, this becomes an important topic for us to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. And also, 
it, it also is consistent with this idea that we are saved by grace alone. It's, it's God's work. It's nothing that we've done to save ourselves. So much of Christianity today talks about synergism, working together with God to bring about our salvation. Uh, some of them would deny it. They would say it's all Christ alone, but yet in the next breath they might say, but it's up to you to make a decision for Christ. You need to send out the invitation and say this prayer to ask Jesus to come into your heart because otherwise he can't do it. You know, he's the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, but he's not able to do that or whatever it might be. There's, there's many different variations on the teachings out there, but the point is uh, all of this centers on the, the question of what is our natural condition and as a result, what needs to happen for our conversion, for our rebirth, for our enlightenment, however you wanted to describe it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, this I kind of maybe alluded to this already. St. Paul says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, Nobody can confess faith in Jesus as their Savior apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll get more into the specifics of how that happens in just a second. But Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 as well. Uh, Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, literally born again from above in the Greek, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we need a new spiritual birth from above, as Jesus says. He actually makes reference to water in the Spirit there, which we'll talk about in a later episode as we, we talk about Christian baptism. But it is worth noting here that it is the Spirit who gives new life, the new birth that we need to enter into God's kingdom. In his letter to the Galatians, St. Paul says, the works of the flesh are evident. And uh, let's see what, how Paul would describe the works of our sinful flesh. He would say adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. And then he says, and the like. In other words, etc., etc. I could keep on going, but that's where he ends his list, which is already quite extensive. He says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not, they will not, inherit the kingdom of God. So, obviously, uh, that's within our natural powers to do all those kind of things. And we're pretty good at it. And I think experience bears the truth of that for each one of us. St. Paul would tell the Romans, he says, the carnal mind... The fleshly mind is enmity against God. It's hostile to the things of God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. It's not even possible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talked about uh, the truth of the gospel, which is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe. So people are, are blind to the things of God as unbelievers. 
So we need somebody to give us sight, spiritual sight, and life, and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So the unbelieving mind doesn't really even care about the things of God, pretty much thinks it's foolishness anyways. He's not able to come to an understanding. So we're not going to reason somebody into the faith. And I think there's a lot of people out there who think that is how it works. If I can give you a convincing enough argument, if I can lay all these facts before you, if I can sort of lay out all the reasons why you should become a believer, then you'll make this decision where you're going to turn yourself from being dead in your trespasses to becoming a believer in Jesus all of a sudden. doesn't work that way. Because the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, they're foolishness to him, nor can he know them. It's not possible because they're spiritually discerned. And speaking about this uh, you know, sinful nature, St. Paul would say, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature or my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. We don't even have the ability, the power to do it. In Colossians 1, he says, And you, his readers, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. God has done it. He's reconciled you to himself. So, how can a person be saved and come to faith in Jesus? After we've, we've painted such a bleak picture here, uh, now is where we finally come to see the significance of the work of the Holy Spirit, not only to bring us to faith and to enlighten us, but specifically how he does that is important for us to look at too. Because a lot of people would say, I don't know how the Spirit comes to us. I guess you just got to pray for him or something. Or, uh, you know, he's just kind of floating around out there and he's just going to zap you into the faith if he wants to. Well, n not quite. Um, the, the scripture speaks very specifically as to how and where the Holy Spirit does his work of converting and changing hearts, giving rebirth, enlightenment, and so on. So obviously, you know, we think about St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, where he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, Jesus said. Yes, the Holy Spirit works through the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or the word of God. And this is not unlike what Jesus himself says in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where he says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to make them holy. And he would go on to say, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, speaking of his apostles that he was going to send out with his word. And notice how people come to believe through their word, through the word of God, through the word of truth. As the book of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's this tendency to see the Bible as a dead letter, as it's just a history book that talks about people long ago and nice stories that inspire within us some sort of warm sentiments. No, it's living and active. There's also a tendency to see the scriptures as the academic classroom where it's all about acquiring the right kind of knowledge, the proper knowledge of facts. And, you know, if you do this, then you're going to be saved. 
again, that cheapens the scriptures. As we come to read the scriptures, the inspired scriptures in the Bible, we are encountering the living Lord himself. We are encountering Christ who comes to us through that word. The Holy Spirit is active through that word. This becomes huge. There's nothing else like it in this world. So we talk about how God works through means. He works through his word. There's there's a lot of people say, well, I don't go to church. I don't hear God's word. I don't even read my Bible, but I still believe. That's not what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's like never eating and claiming to be alive. Well, sooner or later, you die. And faith that is not fed, where God feeds faith through his word and promises, will eventually die as well. You might say, oh, it's not, but the reality is is that you stop eating, you die. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, St. Paul says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. It's not a message about reconciliation. It's the message that brings reconciliation reconciliation that Christ has won for all people. Of course, we call this message, this word, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And now, again, uh, am I just pulling these things out of the thin air or is there something to this? Let's see if the Bible is consistent. We've heard Paul, we've heard St. John write this, Jesus himself speak it, we've heard the book of Hebrews. What does St. Peter have to say? First Peter chapter 1, He says, having been born again, there's that term, born again. You'll hear a lot of born again language from Christians. And most of the time when you hear people use that, they're saying, did you make your decision for Jesus? Did you have some sort of conversion experience? Did you say the sinner's prayer and send a little invitation to Jesus to come into your heart? But here's what St. Peter says in regard to being born again. He says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So there it is again, consistent, that word of God, which gives birth. We've been born again through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, and the grass withers, and its flowers fall away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Again, Peter, consistent with everything we've heard thus far, let's see if there's more. The book of James says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth. He did it. We didn't help him. Uh, We didn't do it ourselves. He brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. By the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Oh, that sounds an awful lot like the rest of the scriptures there, James. St. John. Uh, Now, when he had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He's at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. And with a loud voice, he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Dear friends, I would submit to you that that, that right there, that account of 
Jesus raising his good friend Lazarus, that's a picture of us. That's a picture of what needed to happen. It was Christ's word that calls the dead man forth from the tomb and bestows life. That's exactly what happened for us when God called us from the deadness of our sins and trespasses and brought us to life through his word, through his life-giving word, through the Holy Spirit working through that word. So, how does the Holy Spirit bring people to faith? Well, he's called us through the gospel. He calls, he gathers, he enlightens through this same gospel. It's through that gospel that he bestows Christ's treasures of salvation. He, he works faith in our hearts so that we accept this treasure and we appropriate it to ourselves and we receive it by faith. But all of this is the work of God. We can't take credit for any of it. So we call the word of God, the gospel, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, the means of grace, because these are the ways, the means by which the Holy Spirit brings the grace of God to sinners. Now, I should note that as Lutherans, we would therefore reject, in a general sense, the, the, the charismatic movement as we, we come to have known it through Pentecostalism as being unbiblical, because Pentecostalism tends to emphasize the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, particularly in dramatic gifts, the spiritual gifts of healing, direct prophecy, speaking in tongues, ecstatic speech, uh, so on and so forth. It tends to focus more on the believer's inner life of spiritual experience and look for direct outpouring of the Holy Spirit outside of the means of grace, the gospel and word and sacrament, where Christ has promised to be, where the Holy Spirit is working, according to the scriptures. This Pentecostal movement also tends to look down on water baptism as being merely symbolic. Why? Because God doesn't work through means. And Holy Communion, uh, also in the same way, uh, it's just symbolic. It can't really be what Jesus says it is. God doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, if he wants me to have something, he, he, he sort of deposits it directly into my heart. He doesn't need to work or come to me in any sort of way, concrete way, apart from that. So, you know, that's in direct conflict with the promises of God. When Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, make disciples, how? By baptizing, by teaching all that I've commanded you. And in this way, lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So, this work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life, what do we call that? Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, we could call that enlightenment. We don't tend to use that term. We might call it illumination. Since the Holy Spirit makes our hearts bright with the knowledge of Jesus, who is the light of the world and the certain hope of our salvation. As we heard already from Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus, you must be born again. We could call it regeneration or rebirth. Uh, since the Holy Spirit gives new spiritual life to all who were dead in sin, but have now been born again from above, literally. And Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, this is where we get the term conversion, to turn about, to convert, 
to turn the other direction. Uh, and obviously, since the Holy Spirit is the one who turns us from sin and death to God and eternal life, we usually talk about the work of conversion being the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Now, that, that kind of begs the question, and this is kind of getting into some deeper waters, which, you know, probably requires a more thorough discussion. But, uh, you know, everybody wants to know, well, if all of this is true, if we're born dead in our sins and trespasses, and it's completely by the grace of God, he is the one who has to work new life in us and, and give us spiritual life and grant us faith and so on. Well, why aren't all people saved then? Maybe God doesn't really want all people to be saved. Maybe God doesn't really work with the same sort of seriousness on all people. Now, there are people who say those kind of things, and let's be clear that that's not true, but that's what reason would suggest. I mean, that's kind of the logical conclusion that you might come to. So here's where it's important that we see uh, what the Scripture speaks so that we don't come to a false understanding of that as well. In the book of Ezekiel, we hear God say, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So, God doesn't want to see anyone die. He desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, as we hear in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So, God's primary will is that all people be saved, and this is why the gospel is sent out to all the world, right? Go preach the good news to all creation. If God didn't want all men to be saved, he'd say, go preach it to the good people or the elect or whoever, you know, whoever it is I might have chosen. He doesn't say that. He says to all nations, all people, baptize all nations. So the Holy Spirit certainly calls all people with equal seriousness. The answer why some people are saved and others not cannot be found in God. That would be saying that God doesn't want all people to be saved. And there are, uh, to be fair, there are Christian denominations that do teach that. They teach that Jesus only died for the elect. He only died for those who would come to believe. We call that limited atonement. That's not what the scriptures teach. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why then, if we're, if we're trying to answer this question, and this is a dangerous question, by the way, to even try to entertain because you're never going to answer it satisfactorily according to logic or reason. So why are not all people saved? If the answer is not found in God, well, why, why do some people go to hell? Acts 7, we, we hear this uh, admonition that you always resist the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 65, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Matthew 23, Jesus lamenting, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Matthew 22, Jesus said, for many are called, but few are chosen. And Jesus said in Matthew, uh, John 15, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So the reason people are lost is because of their rejection, their rebelliousness uh, against the Holy Spirit who works through 
the means of grace, the gospel and word and sacrament. And most people stubbornly resist the word of God and are thus lost by their own fault. On the other hand, when a person is saved, it is solely by the grace of God. And as I just said, when a person is lost, it's solely by his or her own fault. Now, that sounds like a, a contradiction. And uh, it doesn't seem like the both things can be true. That if we're saved, it's completely all God's doing. If we're lost, it's completely all our own doing. And it's much easier, as much of Christianity does, to answer it one way or the other. Either it's all God's fault, some are damned and some are saved, or it's all man's credit that they're saved or lost. It's all, it's all up to us to accept or reject, or it's all because of God that we accept or reject. This sort of answer that we've just discussed is much more nuanced and unsatisfactory in many ways. It's not nice and neat. It's not tidy. We can't just put it in a box. It doesn't seem to make sense. So, Scripture clearly teaches that those who have been called to faith by the gospel were elected from eternity according to God's unmerited love and were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I guess the illustration that I've sometimes used to to help illustrate this is if by nature— the picture that we had by nature, how, how are we as we come into this world? We're down in a deep, dark hole. We like that dark, deep hole. We don't know that there's anything else but that deep, dark hole. And in order for us to get out of that hole, there's no, there's no ladders out. There's no ropes dropped in. Somebody's literally got to grab us by the scruff of our neck and lift us out. Now, if that happens, somebody lifts us out of that deep, dark hole that we love so much, and we stand up on solid ground in the light for the first time ever, we don't say, wow, that was a great thing I just did. What would you say? You say, thank you. You saved me. I didn't even realize this place existed. I was happy to be in darkness, but I've been rescued from that deep, dark hole. Now, if somebody reaches their hand down in that hole to grab you by the scruff of the neck and you keep slapping that hand away, no, I'm happy down here. Leave me alone. Whose fault is it that you still are in that deep, dark hole? It's your own. You know, and and that's kind of the illustration that I sometimes use, but obviously no illustration is perfect. And, you know, this one included. But it gives you a little bit of a sense of how the two statements can be true that we're saved completely by God's grace alone, nothing we've done to earn or merit it. Uh, It's not based on our cooperation. And yet the other side of it is that we can resist God. As he comes to us working through means, uh, we can reject that word. We can ignore that word. We can harden our hearts against that word. And that is, in fact, what we see happening so often in this world. Now, what else does the Holy Spirit work in us by the gospel? We talked about, you know, conversion, enlightenment, illumination, those kind of things. Well, the scriptures say in 1 Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. To sanctify means to make holy. We talked about justification before. We are declared righteous through faith in Jesus, but immediately upon our justification, we are made temples of the Holy Spirit who works in us to will and to do according to God's good purpose, 
who enables us and empowers us to do works that are pleasing to God. We call that life of Christian service uh, to God and our neighbor, uh, our life of sanctification. Now, obviously, our justification is perfect. We are holy based on the righteousness of Christ. But the Holy Spirit goes on to make us righteous as well, and that is a work that is imperfect in this world. We will never be completely sin-free until we are glorified in heaven. So, but we call this work of growing in holiness sanctification. And, of course, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The gospel is not a license to continue to live in sin. You've been freed from a slavery, a bondage, not so that you can dive right back into it, but so that you can live in God's kingdom with Christ, serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So, on the one hand, we still have this sinful nature that we battle with, but we are also new creations in Christ. So, while we are sinners, if we say we have no sin, we, de- we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I mean, that's, that's what St. John says. But if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So, we are also saints, sinners and saints. Simul justus et peccator, as Luther would explain it, simultaneously saint and sinner. And yet, uh, you know, in repentance, we continue to pray with the psalmist, David, in Psalm 51, uh, create in me a clean heart, O God. And he does that through the work of his Holy Spirit, right? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So, wonderful psalm, Psalm 51. Ephesians chapter 2, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, there is certainly room for a discussion of good works in the Christian life, but they are works that follow our justification. They are works that flow from our new life in Christ, empowered and motivated by the gospel and the Holy Spirit who is at work in us. God certainly wants our good works. Uh, That is the life of a Christian, according to the scriptures. So, uh, if anybody thinks that being a Christian is just getting your ticket punched by Jesus, I'm standing in line, I'm going to heaven because Jesus punched my ticket, And that's it. There's nothing else to it. That's not true. We have new life now in Christ who lives in us, who dwells in us, and we live by his life. We've died with him. We've risen with him in baptism. So the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, renews our hearts by faith so that we can overcome sin and do good works. He's the one who continues to strengthen our faith in Jesus, and he continues to do that through the gospel in word and in the sacraments. So we'll talk more about the sacraments in a later episode. But we, we should probably answer one final question as I, as I brought up the idea of good works. What, what is a good work anyways? We should probably define that. What is a good work in the sight of God? Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So our good works are fruits of faith fruits of our life in Christ. They're the natural fruits of it. You know, Jesus talks about a bad tree not bearing good fruit and a good tree not bearing bad fruit, that kind of thing. And a lot of times people think that, well, if I just do enough good things, then that makes me a good tree. No, because unless we're grafted into Christ, we have no life in us. We We can do nothing. That's what Jesus said. 
And the book of Hebrews says it maybe a slightly different way. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So a good work is one that is done in faith, in true faith in Jesus. You know, and this sounds kind of bizarre, I suppose, to unbelievers, but you have an unbeliever and a believer who do the same exact thing. Maybe they go down and they help out at the soup kitchen. I, I use that example all the time. I don't know why. But to the world, they look identical. Wow, great thing. And it is a good thing for, for the, the community or, or whoever they're serving. Certainly, we wouldn't deny that. But in God's sight, only one of them is actually a good work. Only one of them is done in faith. Only one of them is done as a fruit of that new life in Christ. So I think we have to be careful that we don't define good works by our own standards. We have to look and see what the scriptures themselves teach in this regard. John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So in service to God, we want to do what's God-pleasing. This is the way we show our thanks. As parents, you can threaten and coerce your children all you want. You know, if, if you don't do your homework, if you don't clean your room, I'm taking away your cell phone or whatever it might be. And it works. You know, fear is a pretty good motivator. But eventually, that child's going to do whatever they want anyways when they stop fearing you. Love changes people. You know, it's much more lasting and much more powerful motivator it's because God has loved us in Christ. It's because he has accomplished our redemption with his own blood in Christ. What can we offer him in thanks? Nothing. There's nothing we can do that can even come close. But certainly, uh, for such an undeserved gift, uh, we would want to serve him. We live our lives in thanksgiving to him. We love because he first loved us, and so on. And it's through love that we serve one another, as St. Paul would say to the Galatians. And, you know, certainly Jesus himself speaks of, of these kind of uh, things when he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So our good works give glory to God, not to ourselves. So in the sight of, of God, good works are those things that are the Holy Spirit leads a Christian to do in faith, out of love, according to the Ten Commandments, to the glory of God and for the benefit of our neighbor. Of our, our fellow man. So, you know, that's, I suppose, uh, one last little bit that we should discuss. But uh, I know we've covered quite a bit here in this episode, this lesson, and we'll continue with this discussion uh, in the future here. I mean, there's more that can be said. Certainly, this is not exhaustive by any means. And if you have questions, you know, certainly let us know uh, because we would certainly like to uh, address those as well. But uh, on behalf of Western Kashkanon Lutheran Church, this is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lloyd Thompson. We'll see you next time on Under the Oaks. <laughs>